Welcome All, the anthology that was released in May, How to Improve Our Schools in the Post-Pandemic Era, can be found on the Hoover Education Success Initiative website, www.hoover.org backslash H-E-S-I. I do encourage everyone out there to have a look at the uh, anthology of articles that were released just a couple of months ago, including one from Professor Handyshek, who we'll hear from today. For the first session uh, of our six-part series, we're going to tackle teacher quality, teacher compensation, and the teaching profession. And the title of the session, Will Increasing Teacher Pay Harm Students? Uh, certainly, we're, we're not starting off with a, with a boring session title, to say, to say the least. Uh, my name is Christopher Raskowski. I've had the honor of being a Distinguished Policy Fellow at, who, at the Hoover Institution and being part of HESI for the past two and a half years now. And I'm joined by three very distinguished panelists, uh, Dr. Hanishak, Dr. McGuire, and Dr. Bofi, uh, all of whom have worked in the classroom, school, federal, state level combined and have decades of experience working on teacher quality issues. Uh, before I had the chance to come to Hoover, I had a chance to serve as the Secretary of Education uh, for the state of New Mexico under Governor Susana Martinez, but you won't be hearing that much from me today. I'll just be your moderator uh, for, for, the, for the afternoon over the next 75 minutes. You will, however, hear from these three awesome panelists, and I'm, I'm happy to know them all a little bit and be getting to know some of them. Uh, first and foremost, I'd love to introduce to you Dr. Holly Bofi. She's the representative of District 7 on the State Board of Elementary and Secondary Education. She's been on that board, I believe, for over 10 years now. And in 2010 was Louisiana's uh, Teacher of the Year. So over a decade ago was Louisiana's Teacher of the Year after being a middle school teacher for over a decade. Uh, she then went on to work at uh, CCSSO and is today a principal uh, in, her, in her local community. We're also joined by Professor Hanyashek uh, of the Hoover Institution. Uh, he is the chair of the Hoover Education Success Initiative and someone I get to work with very closely and the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, for those of you that don't, are not familiar with his work, he pioneered measuring teacher quality on the basis of student achievement and his work on school efficiency is central to debates about school finance adequacy and equity across America today. And last but not least, Ken McGuire. Joining us, he's the program director at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. Uh, he's our third panelist. He leads investments for teaching and learning and open education resource strategies at the Hewlett Foundation. Previously, he served as president and CEO at the Southern Education Foundation and as the dean of the College of Education at Temple University. He was also assistant secretary at the United States Department of Education during the Clinton administration. So clearly three panelists coming to us from uh, experience in, in DC, in California, in Lake Charles, in Baton Rouge, uh, all, all over the country and coming at this issue from many, many different perspectives. Uh, over the next 40 minutes or so, I'm gonna throw out a couple of different questions for our panelists to respond to. Uh, Professor Handyshek, I'll probably start with you since, since your article that, that we released just a couple of months ago was the basis and the kickoff for for our conversation today. But for our audience members that are joining from all over the country and all over the world, uh, you will be able to, to put questions uh, into the question format in Zoom. And in about 45 minutes, hopefully we'll turn to some of those questions. We will, we will screen those questions for clarity and for repetition. Uh, and we look forward to, to hearing those questions at the, about, about the 45 to 50 minute mark um, of the panel. So, this will be a lively hour. Rick, Kent, Holly, please don't hold back in, in your thoughts and perspectives and experience uh, as we jump in. So, so Rick, uh, the, the title, Will Teacher Pay Harm Students? A little bit of a controversial title, a, little, a title that maybe bucks conventional wisdom out there. Uh, so maybe we'll start with you sharing your background and Holly and Kent will do the same. Uh, how you come at this issue uh, through your decades of experience in schools with data and research so that the audience has an understanding of how you've come to this work. Thanks, CR. Um, 
this is a really important discussion, I think. I think this is central to anything that schools do in the next 10 years, really, of how do we compensate our effective teachers and make sure that we have effective teachers in all the classrooms. I come at it as a researcher who for a long time has been arguing that the central element of all schools is the quality of the teaching force and the quality of the teachers, their effectiveness is what determines whether a school is good or not. The pandemic has really reinforced and highlighted this whole message. What we've seen in the pandemic is obviously schools have not maintained their past performance levels. And we've had a lot of um, remote instruction, a lot of hybrid instruction, and we've seen increasing disparities in the outcomes. The one thing that I think we've learned out of the pandemic more than anything else is the importance of teachers, that teachers are really important. And if we go to entirely remote instruction, we miss a lot because the teacher is not there to guide, to help, to motivate uh, the students. Um, and so we've underscored the importance of teaching, but at the same time, because this entire cohort has lost on average a lot of learning because of the closures in 2020 and because of the um, somewhat uh, erratic start restarts of schools last year, this cohort is behind. And if we don't do something to make the schools better than they were, this cohort will be hurt for the rest of their careers. They will not catch up unless we can actually make the schools better. And to me, that comes down to looking at the quality of teachers and effectiveness of teachers. And so I think we're gonna get into the details of this, but that's where I, uh, how I get into this whole topic. Rick, when you actually wrote the paper uh, that we published a few months ago, uh, I believe you maybe we started writing it and the pandemic had, had already started, right? But then you had written another paper the year before on a similar topic. And I guess I just wanted to maybe get a sense to the audience in terms of how um, how that moment changed what your perspective was or how the data and research changed your perspective. Um, so the Hoover Education Success Initiative had in the, before the pandemic done a series of different papers that were designed to look at some long run issues of accountability, of certification, of choice in schools and of teacher compensation and effectiveness. These were real ideas that, to try to plant the seed for things that should change in the future as we go forward in schools. Then the pan pandemic came, um, and to me, the one part that got completely reinforced was the teaching force, the quality of the teaching force. But we had to think of that in a much more immediate circumstance. We had to make sure, uh, in my opinion, that the kids who were hurt really got effective teaching. And to me, that meant getting more effective uh, teachers working, working with more kids, basically more intensively. But it also meant um, in this era where the stress is on teachers, teachers are obviously stressed a lot and they're asked to do very different things. I think that the case is that some teachers are really good at remote and hybrid instruction. Some teachers are really good at in-class instruction. And to, um, to my way of thinking, the way we're gonna make our schools better is to recognize that teachers have different skills and to really reinforce that in the way we manage our schools, to make sure that the really effective teachers in each mode of instruction, in each uh, different class 
are used most effectively. Holly, a uh, former state teacher of the year, uh, now a principal, 10 years in policy, serve on the state board, which is an 11 member policy making board. Maybe share a little bit more about your background on top of, on top of those uh, top of those experiences and how you come at this issue over the past couple of decades. So from a few angles, I mean, I, I think as, as you point out, uh, I think I'll start though with the piece of, I really loved teaching. And if we could get teacher pay right, that's the job I would do. Um, I've enjoyed, I'm enjoying the principal job, but I, I love teaching. And it, if we could just get the pay right, I would love to be a teacher of record for a group of kids and be able to focus on teaching them specific content. So I think, I mean, that's, that's one perspective. And I think we have to continue to come back to it is um, getting pay right for teachers means that it changes the audience of people who are considering the profession. Um, and so, so that's, that's something that, that is important to me. And, um, and I think influences the way I think about it. I think also just from a practical standpoint in my role as principal is I've already lost a teacher over teacher pay. I've already struggled with a prospective teacher and my school's a little different because it's a career and technical high school. And I'm not looking for people who have come through traditional teacher prep programs. I mean, I'm, I'm working with people who come from the industry and supporting them in becoming teachers. And so they don't really know what the benefits of teaching are, what the salary is. And so we got almost to school start day. And then once the guy, I guess, put pen to paper, he was like, no, no, I can't. I just can't do it. He said, as much as I want to be a teacher, I can't do it. So I would just say firsthand there, it's a limiting factor to who we're attracting into the profession. Um, but then there's the policy perspective and the challenge, like, Rick didn't say we need to pay all teachers a whole lot of money. Rick said that we need to compensate effective teachers. I wrote it down, Rick. Like, so there it. is a, what's that? I think you got he it He stands right. by it. Yeah. So, um, so then that's a challenge from a, from a policy perspective. It's a challenge from an implementation perspective. And Christopher, I mean, our work, we really got to know each other as, we were looking at implementation of teacher evaluation systems and we know how difficult it is. So this is a, it's a great idea, Rick, but like the practicality of being able to decide who the effective teacher is, is like the, the implementation of that is, is really tricky. So you, you have that challenge of, are you, if you did that, if you had the money, could you truly say, these are the effective teachers and I'm going to pay them more and, um, and I wonder, I do wonder that after the years that I've spent attempting to do it in my own state and other states as well. And even as I work as a principal and, um, and figuring out, like, I think, I think it's a great idea in theory. I really struggle about whether or not our evaluation results truly tell us who the effective teachers are and who they aren't. Um, what I do go back to is I think the kids know, and I think the parents know, we just have trouble proving it. Right. So there's, there's that logistical challenge. Um, I also think about, uh, which connect, is connected to a political challenge, right? So it's a logistical challenge that creates a political challenge. Um, but then there's also the finance of it. And um, and figuring that out in all states are different, right? And so like in Louisiana, we've given these really small rates over the last couple of years, but like we're chasing the SREB average, right? Like this is nothing compared to what you would see um, in other parts of the country. Um, and then even thinking about it from a financial perspective is thinking about our retirement benefits and the percentage of, of um, pay that school districts in the state of Louisiana in particular, because that's the one I'm most familiar with. But you know, we don't, we don't reward our teachers on the front end. We reward our teachers on the back end. And, um, and honestly, that was part of what got me back into the system. Like I'd love doing my work outside of the system, but now I'm, I'm getting to a point in my life where I'm starting to think about different things. And so I got back in having about 10 years into the system and getting back in at a point in my life where I get 10 more years that drastically change what, you know, what my opportunities will look like 
when it comes to, you know, 10 years from now. Um, but that is an expensive benefit and, and people don't really talk about that, right? Like you don't, we don't address it head on in Louisiana and there's not the political will around addressing it. And so, and I've had people, um, you know, talk to me about even just the system of the way the money is invested, but there's not, I like the, the political will is not there to really look at the system and to say, maybe we're, maybe we should make some changes around when we reward people. Um, and so I know that there, I know that I do think that there is a growing interest, but I, I think in order to make gains here, we're going to have to shift the conversation a little bit. And uh, Rick, I think the angle that you're talking about might be possible from the perspective of like, like, it's not just about salary, right? It is about, we have a group of kids who have missed out on some learning and what do we, what do we do to make up? Like, how do we, how do we make gains to deal with that gap? And so I know we'll get into the, you know, questions like that a little later on, but just the regular question about, you know, was it, will it hurt kids to pay teachers more? Absolutely not. The question is like, how do we figure out how to do this and where does the money come from? Yep, Kent, let's let's get you into the conversation here. You've seen it at the federal level. Uh, you've seen it at the foundation level. You've, you've been a dean of a school of education. Uh, maybe share a little bit about what you've been working on and, and how you come at this topic. Yeah, thanks. You know, as your introduction makes all too plain, um, I've um, surrounded the problem uh, from everywhere but the classroom. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's an interesting question. You, I'm not qualified in the way that Holly is, let's say, to speak to this. Um, but what I would say is that how I come at this from all the roles I have played in and out of the government, in and out of the research enterprise, in and out of philanthropy, um, I'm still trying to get some leverage on this fundamental question of um, instructional improvement, especially for kids furthest from opportunity. And, you know, I share Rick's, um, you know, you know, I think what's part of what's on his mind here is that you know, if we could figure out who the people are who are particularly good with those kids and then make sure they uh, had what they needed, both in the way of support and compensation to do their best work, uh, we'd get some leverage on that problem. So I, I'm, I'm sort of with him on that. Um, I'm with Holly uh, on how complicated it has been and is likely to be to really zero in on what being effective actually means. Um, I worry, uh, you know, we have a dependent variable that we have long used, it's called a standardized test. Um, <laughs> and I worry sometimes, I'm probably less confident than others about what that's actually measuring. You know, I, you know, whether it's measuring somebody's zip code, you know, or, or it's measuring, you know, the uh, education levels of the parents, right? It, you know, it's me it's measuring something. Um, how much information it's generating that's, you know, instructionally relevant um, is, I think, an important thing to to bear down on. So, I, you know, it might, this might make it even harder, but I actually think if we could have a somewhat more expanded definition of effectiveness um we might get a little more leverage you know you know on the you know on the on on the problem um i don't want to take up too much time here i guess i would only say two more things right now one um i absolutely think at the end of the day focusing on teachers uh is key um a key lever with regard to recovery so I think Rick's absolutely right about that. Um, I also think there are very strong tendencies 
for us to go right back to the world that we were in pre-COVID. I see it already happening, and I think it's unfortunate, but predictable. And finally, I'll say, but I think there are some examples which we should talk more about, uh, about what we could be doing differently. Um, and in my own work, we have a small number of very interesting examples of where that's happening that actually, I think, move in the direction, uh, you know, that, uh, that Rick's headed, whether it has to do with paying teachers more or more fundamentally using our best teachers more imaginatively. I'll pause there. Yeah, let me just come back to you, though, on this on this question, because I'm going to ask a series of more pointed questions now that we've kind of gotten everyone's global perspective. Is there any reason to believe we've been talking about this issue for a, we've been talking about this issue, as you point out, for a long time, changing teacher compensation systems, et cetera. Is there any reason to believe that that would be any more likely now? Well, you know, I'm a I'm a glass half full kind of guy. Right. Um, and maybe the way I'd answer your question is I'm I'm not sure that I'm uh, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful about this. I don't know how optimistic I am uh, about it for, you know, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, Holly got briefly into one of them, this tension between uh, what you would do uh, to reward people now and early in their careers um, versus the, you know, the, the sort of pent up and increasingly deferred challenge of rewarding people at the end, you know, yeah. of their careers. So we just have an economic problem about where we'd find the money for it, even if we could figure out, which I actually think we could, how to do it. Shifting from training and experience to competencies and skills would be a dimension of this, right? Uh, differentiated staffing might be another dimension of this. So if you ask me, could we figure it out technically? I would say, absolutely. If you ask me whether we have the political courage and imagination uh, to Holly's point to, uh, to get it done in the near term, um, that's where I'm less optimistic. And, and Holly, to Ken's point, you know, over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about the ways in which the pandemic has changed things like school accountability, assessment, school choice, career pathways. And I think we're going to find potentially more pronounced shifts and more uh, pronounced changes as a result to those other parts of the education system. You've named that this one might be a little bit more uh, intransigent. And Kent just said the same thing. We could do it technically, but maybe we couldn't get it done from a coalition perspective. So have you seen anything um, on the ground there in Louisiana that suggests that the pandemic is going to make things different this time? Yeah, I, I heard you ask him, is it more likely now? And I think what I would say is it's more necessary. So, and, and I think that's twofold compared to where uh, things were when I've first ran for office in 2011, you know, for the state board in the first time. And one of those is um, just in the midst of a pandemic, students have lost learning time, right? So kids in Louisiana were already vulnerable. We were, uh, we're already vulnerable for a lot of reasons. We're facing a pandemic. Now we have a, we hit a major hurricane last year. We had another major hurricane this year. So it's more necessary from a student perspective. Um, I think it's also more necessary from a teacher supply perspective. So if you talk to people who lead educator preparation programs, what they'll tell you is that their numbers have been declining over time. And, you know, I haven't, I don't have any numbers as of today, but that that's been going and the, the, it's been trending in the wrong direction. So um, it's more necessary. And I think, you know, what is that? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So yeah. at this point, like we, we don't have a choice, but to figure out how to solve the problem because someone needs to teach our children. And I think as Rick eloquently points out, they need to be effective at that work. Rick, I don't have to point out to you that this has sort of been the, uh, 
the same thing over and over and over and over again for the past few decades, oftentimes with little change, is has the last 18 months broken the logjam? I'm not sure if it's broken it yet, frankly, but um, uh, I think it's potentially there because what we've seen is that parents are recognizing that their kids have been hurt by the lack of, by being closed out of schools first, and then by the sort of disrupted kinds of schooling that many of them have gotten. And so parents are, I think, more eager to have something happen. Now, whether that leads to making the changes we need, I'm unsure. Um, but could I pick up on just one uh, loose end of what Holly and Kent both said? It's the evaluation question um, that in my mind, you want to reward teachers that are particularly effective at doing what they're doing. Um, and that's often been argued that, well, we it's just hard to, to make these judgments. But we have research evidence to suggest for a subset of kids, we can see the learning gains that are made in, in test scores. And that's actually, I think, a pretty good measure of effectiveness, but you can't do that for most kids. The alternative is Washington, D.C., which has developed an elaborate evaluation system that uses learning gains if it's available, but that's only for 20 to 25% of the kids where you can get actual learning gains in a subject. The other 75% of the teachers and that 20 to 25% is rated by outside <coughs> evaluators. And it turns out that that's pretty good. So, I mean, I, I think that we know how to do it. As Holly said, uh, parents know and kids know who the most effective teachers are. I would add in principals know um, that Holly might not want to, wanted to have said that. And I would add in that the, the janitor also knows. I mean, it, this is not a secret in most schools who are the most effective teachers and who are the frankly least effective teachers. It's just that we have to develop a system that systematically uses that information to allocate teachers where they're gonna be most effective. Um, and so I, I think it's feasible. Dallas, Texas is also has a very good evaluation system now of both teachers and principals uh, uh, to evaluate them and to reward and, and place them in classrooms on the basis of their effectiveness. Can we get, the, will COVID help us to do that? Well, there's the one hope that I would have is that um, the heterogeneity of teaching has become even more uh, obvious with hybrid instruction and in-class instruction and so forth, that people can see that some people are just better at, at this job than others. Um, can we mobilize it? Yep. Ken, you were gonna uh, jump in there. Well, ahead, I, just, I just, I wanted to thank uh, Rick for tying up the loose ends on, on, on the effect of this question. I, 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 I agree with him a, a lot about we we had a I had a chance on a National Academies panel to take a pretty close look at what DC does and and it, it um, you know making it systematic uh, in ways that people trust it does seem to me to be the 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 uh, the, the issue. All right, so we're almost at the halfway point of this conversation. We, we're I'm starting to see about a handful of questions roll in from our audience members. And I'll just remind our audience that probably in about 15, 20 minutes, whether that's 1.45 if you're in California or whether that's 4.45 if you're in Washington, DC, uh, we're gonna be moving, we're gonna be moving to some questions. Rick, I'm gonna come back though. First, I wanna, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that your paper released 
by the Hoover Education Success Initiative last year on tomorrow's teacher compensation. I believe that was the title, tomorrow's oh. teacher compensation, uh, does talk about both the DC and the Dallas examples that you just referenced. But I'm assuming that part of the reason for the title of our panel today is because of this massive influx in federal dollars that has arrived on the doorstep of every district in America. Um, so that's, I think that's part of the genesis of sure. how we got to this title, right? So here comes the federal funds. Should those federal funds be going into different forms of teacher compensation? Right, well, I think there are two parts to the response to that question. Yes, indeed, we have seen that uh, there are massive federal funds with a short fuse. They, they're there for two or three years. It seems unlikely that the federal government will actually make that permanent. So there's, there's two issues. One is um, if we put all that money into raising overall teacher salaries, two or three years from now, the districts will have to pay for that in some manner. And that is going to cause all kinds of problems because districts aren't used to figuring out how to go up and down and they're spending very well. But secondly, the harming part, um, if we were to use those funds to raise everybody's teacher, every teacher's salaries, what would happen? Well, lots of teachers would be happier, but we would tend to keep this exactly the same teaching force as we have today. We would lock in a bunch of people that uh, might have left because of uncertainties or so on. Um, and the quality, average quality of teaching wouldn't change. There's no reason to suspect that the least effective teachers will leave and the most effective teachers will stay if we raise everybody's salary. Um, in fact, we should end up with the same. Now, maybe sometime in the future when uh, Kent's old school of education gets cranked up and people are, are encouraged to, in fact, come into teaching, um, and Holly has pointed to that also, that other people might be encouraged, but that's a long way off. That Rick, is, Rick is, that what the, is that what the title suggests around harm students? This idea that you could pump a bunch of more money in, but have no impact whatsoever? Yeah, exactly. As, as opposed to using the funds in effective manner. Um, you know, I think that my, my um, lighthouse study in this whole area is a book with a 1962 copyright by Kershaw and McKean called Teacher Shortages and Teacher Salaries, where it was pointed out that, you know, if, if you're short of some particular uh, class of teachers, like we always, we've talked about the shortage of math and science teachers, the shortage of special education teachers, and the shortage of language teachers, um, raising everybody's salaries is not going to encourage that many more to come in to those specialties unless we overpay everybody else. Um, or just the opposite. If we don't uh, don't raise salaries, then you're still going to have these shortages. To me, the the biggest shortage today is the most effective teachers, you know, and that we have to, in fact, deal with the shortage of effective teachers. Now that's that's an overstatement, and uh, I'll get all kinds of emails soon, um, because in fact, our average teaching force is very, very good. But we have to try to increase the number at the top, make sure that those top teachers are going to teach where they're most needed, and to deal with the bottom. Yep. Okay, Ken, coming back around to you, but Holly, real quick. I think Louisiana is probably getting over a billion dollars in federal stimulus. I know that 
states like South Carolina, New Mexico, Delaware are getting, you know, eight, nine hundred, one point two billion dollars. Um, should we be funneling that money into the teacher, teacher career, teacher comp? So I think um, the way that Rick is talking about it is um, is something that I think is very intriguing, especially if we think about it from the uh, perspective of rewarding the gains. So is that, you know, I, I think the title of this presentation is about salary, and that leads you to think about teachers in the aggregate. But when you when you dig into, I think what Rick is saying is that let's let's not look at um, the whole teaching force. Let's pay attention and be more strategic about what what it is that we're trying to accomplish. And so um, and I think that's absolutely necessary because you don't I mean you I, I, for the reasons that Rick pointed out, you can't just go and give everybody a raise tomorrow because this money is not going to continue to come in. And then why would you even do that if you're not if it doesn't change for any of the students? I mean, this this money, if you strategically um, can make a difference in the lives of students and hopefully make up for some of the challenges that we we face through the pandemic. And so um I think given that, then the districts will need some support in thinking about how to do that, those compensation efforts. And um, I know in my own state of Louisiana, there's there's the ability to do that, but I don't see people running to the table to say, I've got this money and I have this idea and I'm going to make it happen because you don't, like I don't, like who's the group that lobbies for this? Right. Like who is there who's to say we have we have a change that we want to make. We know the people who have um, the greatest opportunity to make that change are the ones that are directly in front of the students all day long. But there's no group making there's no group lobbying for that particular effort. Right. Like you've got the textbook companies and the publishers and all, all this stuff lobbying to sell their books. But there's no group saying teachers are the number one in-school factor that influences outcomes for kids. Let's figure out how we reward the ones who are making the biggest difference for kids. And let's see if we can not even just like, I don't want to talk about catching up to where we are because you all know I'm in Louisiana. Like, how can we exceed? How can we use this money to propel us forward? Um, but it, it would take a lot of support to districts to even get there because it's not it's not what I'm hearing. I don't hear anybody talking about it from the way that Rick is is presenting it. Ed, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I don't think there's any question that there's big tensions between what might be understood as a bundle of deferred needs um rubbing up against uh an interest in investing in innovation and that's it, you sort of the moment that we're in it seems to me with the recovery dollars and um uh and to Holly's point, you know, most of the districts are swimming in people who have advice about what they ought to do, you know, with that, uh, with that money. And the fact that it's one time, I think, makes it that much more complicated to use an investment orientation to, let's say, try something from which we could learn enough in the short run to plan to institutionalize over time. Um, but again, I'm, I'm hopeful, uh, you know, about this. Um, I know some of the work we're doing in, with Baltimore, for instance, uh, Rick, uh, here's a place where Sonia Santelis um, absolutely discovered during the pandemic, that some teachers were way better than others <laughs> <laughs> working in virtual context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? 
um, much better at creating the kind of climate and culture for it. Uh, much more effective pedagogy on that platform. And what she would love to do, um, in a sense, is to distribute those teachers across a whole bunch more kids, which quite frankly, virtually, you could do, right? Right, right? so you're really talking about raising class size exponentially for certain teachers who know how to do particular things virtually like really well, right? <laughs> and um, that feels to me like something worth investing in the short run and then figuring out how would you institutionalize that? One more example, CR, the same thing applies to tutoring. You okay. can think about it like triage in the short run, or you can think about it like a version of differentiated staffing uh, that you could institutionalize downstream as you understood a little more about what kinds of extra time and support certain kinds of kids needed, right? And um, the cost functions are different, you know, but you've brought the cost of that really effective teacher way down if you spread them across a whole bunch of kids, right? And you've also brought the cost of support way down if you have um, less expensive people um, doing things that uh, otherwise teachers would have to do, sure. you know, in the classroom. So there's a lot of stuff like that, that I would argue over and above, or in addition to thinking about how we pay them, uh, we ought to seize. In fact, I would argue we get a much, we're likely to get a bigger pop if we could do some combination Absolutely. of those things. And Ken, just to just for you know, just to hit this point clearly, I do hear you saying that this you know, these billions of dollars that are flowing into states right now is an opportunity to try some things over the next couple of years. It is an opportunity to do some pilots, to do some initiatives, whether it be on recruitment, retention, tutoring, uh, thinking about the thinking about the uh, teacher leadership roles differently. Yes, I want to just I, hit that point it, clearly. It is, I, it is a, it is a once in a lifetime opportunity to do those kinds of things. Yep. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that it's also an opportunity to study them to see what happens. You know, we're sort of in the midst of a thousand natural experiments, <laughs> right? In a, in a, in a, in a way. So. So, um, and if you ask me to put my philanthropic hat on um, and say, well, where do you want to play in this? You know, what I'd immediately say is where we find folks that are actually interested in um, uh, doing some investment and experimentation, um, you know, our appetite for stepping in to try to figure out what happened goes way up. Could, Before could we, I, so we, yeah, Holly, are you going to jump in? Rick, go ahead. Can yeah. I just inter, interject for a second? I presume, presume the reason that the Baltimore uh, superintendent would like to use those teachers better and doesn't is that we're stuck with a contract that was written in the pre-pandemic period that specifies maximum class sizes. Yeah, that is a barrier. Ali, go ahead. Well, I, um, you know, one of the things that I was able to observe firsthand when I was working with a, a number of states was the work of a public impact in their opportunity culture. And I mean, they have a lot of the components in place that I think we're talking about is that increasing the reach of the most effective teachers. Something that I think is really important is doing it in such a way to where um, you're able to afford it. Right. Like there's not the big the big cost that comes along with it. And so, I mean, that's an example that I know about. I'm not sure how many others there are. And my hope is that through this process, as I think Rick and Kent have both been talking about, is that we may get examples of other models similar to it. 
And now this notion of remote learning or virtual learning is more widely accepted than it was two years ago. So I think I think that's that's a big difference. Even thinking about, you know, my students at the career and technical school is that they give up in-person hours at their school. Well, they're more likely to take a class online now than they would have been two years ago because now everyone has has some sort of experience with it. Um, so I think I think this is the time to do it. I just don't I do have concerns about um the knowledge and skills of people on the uh, ground to do it at scale. You know, I, I have that benefit, but it's because I had this great opportunity with CCSSO to see all kinds of different organizations and all kinds of different in states doing different things. And I don't know how widely understood that is, or even, you know, I, I mean, the reality of being in a school and, you know, Christopher, you can appreciate this is like, Sometimes it's just about surviving the day. And when you have, you you can't really sit and be reflective and innovative when you're dealing with someone's really bad decision. So it's, um, it's, it's hard. It's hard for practitioners to be reflective and innovative when they're trying to figure out um, contact tracing, right? Like it's, we, there might be more money than ever, but there's also more pressure than ever. And it takes more time. And so, you know, I, my school was in session all last year, like the nurse was commending us when we had to do some contact tracing today. And I'm like, well, we learned how to do this. We have some systems in place, but that doesn't, it still takes time out of the day. So people aren't like in the best mind, they're not in the best place to be innovative and creative. Got it. Yep. No. All right. So we now have a lot of questions from the audience. As you guys have grown more animated, they've grown more animated as well. So we've got a lot here. So I'm going to ask for kind of the brevity as much as you can in your responses. I think, Rick, I think a lot of the questions that I'm seeing here are around design, right? How do you design a system that has recruitment features new teacher features, career ladder features, and retirement incentives. So, you know, soup to nuts, right? From and, and there's at least three or four questions from the audience that ask about, you know, isn't this a, don't you have to attack this on three or four different levels? Yes. <laughs> the answer is, uh, of course you do. And, and this is complicated. And I don't think that there's one model that's going to work. I think it's going to be local decision making uh, on a lot of this. But states, Holly and, and her compatriots in other states can do a lot to provide incentives to get around to something different. Um, the design features that I would think of are first raising entry salaries relative to exit salaries, moving retirement into current compensation and not in a big bundle at the end of retirement with these cliffs that require people to leave. Um, and um, to me, and the, probably the most controversial thing I'll say today is that I would make it easier to get into teaching, but harder to stay in teaching. That I would, in fact, um, uh, open up teaching to people that um, all have a, a bachelor's degree, no convictions as pedophiles, and are willing to work hard. And um, then I would make it harder to stay as opposed to now we make it very hard to get in to teaching and that, but we make it pretty easy to stay because very few people, if they want to stay are stopped from doing that. So I would, re the, the biggest design feature I would make is that switch in our mentality that we want to allow more people to come in and we'll see, you know, the, how effective they are and then make it harder to stay if they're not effective. So Kent, Holly, same question. Cause again, a lot of the questions here 
are about these design features. And it's, they're usually the questions are, you know, happening on multiple levels. Should we increase starting pay, which Rick has said, yes, while also fixing how retirement incentives are, are created. Other, other features, Holly and Kent, that you'd, that you'd wanna add to Rick's initial sketch. Well, I'd just like to outline something that I heard Rick say earlier is that I think that um, what he just does, what he just talked about are design elements of a long-term strategy, right? But that I think there's an there is an immediate short-term strategy around we've got we have learning loss. How do we how do we make this into gains? And then how do we capitalize on having this, this infusion of federal money that we didn't have before. So uh, the piece I would add is that like is working around this, this federal money right now, it's a point in time and how we invest this money really matters. And again, investing it in the people because they're the number one in school factor that have the greatest opportunity to influence. And I think also building their skills, right? Like, so I, I would, I certainly want to, invest in the gains and maybe reward people who are able to get the greatest gains fastest. But then I also want to develop people's skills because when the money goes away and I still have these people, I want them to be better at the task at hand. Um, and I just don't, as I love that Rick says it, I love that this is where his research is. I wholeheartedly agree with it, but I'm not sure people in the field have gotten there. I don't know that everybody believes that the number one in school factor is the teacher. I'm not sure why they don't understand it yet, but I have concerns that that's not, I, I just don't know that it's the case. You know, at a really high level, I, I take Rick's point about making it easier to get in. Uh, well, you know, say it again, Rick. Easier to get in and harder to stay and, in. And harder to stay in, thank you. Um, I do worry that uh, there's a number of good people who do get in um, and then we lose them sure. because we can't provide the kind of institutional supports they need to be successful. and. That's not very efficient either when you think about it, right? So that seems that we've got an efficiency problem there that does need some attention and it becomes even more important the easier it is that we make it for people to, you know, to enter, right? Um, and um, then there's this differentiation uh, thing that I want to come back to because I, I really think there's a bottleneck there. The more we are inclined to think about the workforce as all exactly the same, you know, as if we were at Ford Motor Company or something right. like that, when we're not, right? We're especially not now. I'm, I'm in the deeper learning business here. I need teachers. Um, if they can't think and learn deeply themselves, we haven't got a shot at kids being able to do it, you, you, right? So... So uh, there's a certain kind of professionalism that it needs to emerge uh, and to replace this notion of this is just sort of labor. You know, that, that, that I think is another uh, shift in mindset, if not design, that, uh, you know, that I think needs some tension. And then finally, um, given... Look, what I think we know is that the contours of the current workforce, however effective it is or isn't, um, in terms of race, gender, and ethnicity, uh, and the like, is largely unchanged over a 20-year period of time. Um, and the composition of the student population has changed dramatically <laughs> over that same period of time. So we have a cultural competence and linguistic competence problem, and we have a diversity problem in the workforce. And I think it would be a mistake to just ignore that right. um, as we think about uh, making it easier to get in, um, you know, and harder to stay, 
um, as we think about how to reallocate resources that it lines up with who we really want, you know, to, to, to keep. Kent, I, I have to ask this question because something that Holly and I have worked on for a long time together, and there was a question from our audience about measuring and improving teacher education programs. I'm a recovering dean, man. I'm still in therapy. So let me <laughs> let me start. Let me start, <laughs> let me start with you know with uh, with that. I think that problem has two dimensions to it. I think the problem is real. I think it has uh, it has not one but two dimensions to it. The dimension that's getting the most attention right now, and it's a real one, is to figure out um, how to think harder about embedding or grounding teacher preparation in practice. In other words, and so we're, we're sort of gravitating to the need for clinical experiences. And I agree that we need those uh, and we should get better at them. And quite frankly, uh, see, are, there are some intriguing design issues wrapped up in that. Um, if we actually want the kind of strategic interaction between preparers and employers that we probably should have. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Here's the other issue that I think has gotten less attention. There is at the same time, I will argue, uh, a much more robust science of learning. Um, things we know about how people learn and develop. Um, the connections between that knowledge base and the preparation of future educators are weak to non-existent too, right? Uh, so that is that is very much in the province of preparing institutions who I think um, uh, have to step back um, and worry more, not both about um, subject matter knowledge uh, and core disciplinary knowledge um, and how those two things work together uh, to create really effective teachers. There's a, you know, there's another set of questions here sparkled throughout and I'll just check the clock uh, here. Rick, Holly, there's a bunch of different questions from our audience members about the DC example, the Dallas example, examples from Denver, I could point to examples from uh, when New Mexico was doing excellence in teaching awards for a year or two, and then the administration changed, and now we don't do excellence in teaching awards anymore. So I guess there's a bunch of questions, Rick, about why it seems to be that whenever a superintendent or state commissioner does take on this work, maybe with the exception of DC, it ends up being pretty short-lived, often not replicated, often not spread in its best practice. Well, you're getting into the politics of education and uh, a lot of educational decisions are not based upon research or not based upon what we see our st students being able to know and do, but they're based upon political interest of different groups. And um, these audience people and you are bringing up one of, uh, one of the reasons why sometimes I wake up very pessimistic uh, when I get up. And that's that many of the reforms seem to be associated with individuals as opposed to institutions. And it's very hard to institutionalize these and keep them going. Now, DC and Dallas are two places that have managed to keep it going, uh, DC for 10 years now, um, Dallas for seven years, I think it is. Um, and we want to be able to replicate them, but they're not getting the attention and the um, uh, sort of praise that they should get. Well, you know, there's a there's a bunch of different questions in the audience from the audience around this work has been done before, right? There have been districts and states, right, that have raised starting teacher pay, that have rewarded effectiveness, but it often seems that either those leaders don't 
make it very far mm -hmm. uh, in from a popularity perspective and, and a staying power perspective and that those practices are often not scaled? Um, well, I do think the turnover in the last 10 years, especially when you look at the state leadership pers perspective, is unlike anything we've ever seen before. So if you would look at state chiefs and their staying power over the last 50 years, there was a huge decline in the last 10 years. And um, I think people, when, when people get a job and they look at how long the previous person stayed in that, that role, I mean, I think any new state chief is gonna say, well, Maybe I don't care that much about it. So, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to have political will when um, if you're if you're committed to being in that job for an extended period of time. So I think the same is true just in with like legislatures that they'll see, um, you know, they're responding to the voters, they're responding to this push um, and you know, it, we're not looking at the research aspect of it. We're looking at the popularity. And so you, you're just getting that kind of turnover. I mean, to do this work really well, you need to do it for a consistent amount of time. And, um, and that's, that hasn't been in place, especially in the last five years. All right. Well, we are in our final five minutes here. Uh, Final thoughts, Kent, then Holly, then Rick on, on this topic will, you know, whether it's will increasing teacher pay harm students, which I know was the, was the, was the hook, but, but perhaps more importantly, kind of your final take on what needs to be done next. Well, you know, um, I, I commend this session. Uh, I think we need more of these uh, to stir the pot and to bring a small number of really big ideas into view, uh, particularly at times like this CR, when, um, you know, there's this wash of resources, um, uh, you know, a real serious need to recover well um, and not nearly enough time and headspace to consider what the options are. And so the more of this we could do, um, the more people who can participate in these discussions um, to sort of take their merits and, you know, and take apart some of these ideas. I was just taken apart in one of the Q&As a little while ago that sort of you know, could confirm my ignorance, you know, you know, from a classroom teaching point of view. So, but I think these are good things, good, good, discussion, good discussions and having, I, Rick, I, I commend the provocative title around the, <laughs> around the session. Thank you, Kat. Holly, your, your final 60 seconds. Well, I think that the, I think people on the line can really be a champion for are the use of these federal funds to be used in strategic ways to make a difference for, for students. And so I think one of the, um, some of my earlier comments was around not having the constituents that are really pushing for a different approach to this work. And so I think the people on the line can be the champions to do it. I also think these kinds of conversations are um, are helpful. You know, I'm walking away from this conversation thinking about these things differently than I was when I was just reading the questions. And so I think that th these kinds of conversations are helpful, but that we also need the people on the line to really champion the fact that this is a point in time. And I think we're going to um, either be very proud or um, have a lot of regrets about how this this money is has been used when we look back on it uh, five years from now or so. Thanks, Holly. Professor Hanyashek. Well, I always uh, I, I'm just amazed at the perceptiveness of my co-panelists and their experiences and how they brought it together. And so, I can't add much to what they say on the immediate thing, but uh, I would just. Uh, add the challenge that I think has to be more important to the nation. 
The future of the United States, in my, my, my opinion, is entirely dependent upon improving the quality of our schools. Our schools are not internationally competitive, but the world economy is internationally competitive. And for us as a nation, I think we have to face up to the fact that we have to improve our schools. And so it's a matter of making this public as opposed to saying, oh, everything's fine. Uh, but in fact, we have to do that. Thank you, Rick. Thank you again to all three of our panelists, Kent, Holly, Rick. Appreciate you taking this hour to have this conversation. I think we had a couple hundred people listening from all over the country and uh, received a couple dozen questions. So thank you to our audience members for sending in those questions. Uh, we will post a recording of this session on the Hoover Education Success Initiative website uh, shortly and then our homepage uh, for the Hoover Institution, hoover.org if you'd like to revisit the session or share with your friends. And we will be back, same time, same place, over the next five weeks, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. Next week's panel, can we stop the clock replacing seat time with mastery? So yet another small little topic that we'll be tackling next week at the Hoover Education Success Initiative webinar series. Have a great Wednesday evening, everyone, and thank you for being here.